you're seeing them when the cameras aren't and you get to see everyone's true colors because everybody turns it on when the camera's on they don't want to look bad in front of everybody it's what they act behind the scenes when the cameras are not rolling i think it shows who they really are this is living as you here's your host Tennis magic, hilarious adventures, compassion behind the scenes. This is Living As You, and it's your guy, PQ, fired up to bring you another interview with a genuine leader in our world. Mike Nakajima is quite the storyteller. A Nike tennis and sports marketing director of 28 years, Mike brings a whole host of stories and experiences with some of the best athletes of the tennis world that are just unparalleled. Currently a consultant of the USTA and a director of baseline performance finance, Mike continues to share his love of tennis with the next generation of top tennis players and coaches. It's been a great gift getting to know Mike on a personal level and an even greater joy to share his story with you today. Mike. Patrick. What's going on? What's happening? It's so good to see you. Well, look at you with your pictures. (laughs) Thanks to you, we've been able to deck out our man cave a little. So though, this is hey, our- Look at that. Wait, wait, is that Palomalo? <laughs> Come on, go. We got to have a little Pittsburgh memorabilia. Yes. Oh man, look at those posters. You're classic. <laughs> we got to get you down here. We got a little ping pong in the corner that Michael and I like to see. Oh man. You doing any ping pong battles these days? Well, you got to realize my, my boys are gone right now, so I need, give me a chance to practice. It gives me a chance. I got to practice a little bit more. I'm tired of getting beat by my kids. <laughs> so, so, Mike, I wanted to begin by today really diving into some stories, some of the moments, your time with Nike, uh, particularly with your athletes and especially in regards to the concept of authenticity and generosity. Tell me about one of your first moments in Nike tennis, working with an athlete, a junior, or an agent that maybe shaped you as a person. Well, you know what? When I started working for Nike, obviously I was single, no kids, and just doing what I thought was like the the most fun job that anybody can actually give me. And when you do that, but then, you know, by the time I, I finished, married 20 odd years and three kids, my perspective changed quite a bit. But part of it is that a lot of the athletes, especially young athletes, players in college, they'll ask me, right? So it's like, shall I turn pro? They ask me that all the time. Obviously, if I've got the Nike hat on and if I think that this kid's going to make it, I'll say, yeah, absolutely. But if I put on the dad hat on and say, you're a lot better off going to get an education. And it's not an easy conversation to have. But the fact that they kind of ask me, you know, or the parents will ask me, or the, even the agent will ask me, should you have turned pro? Because what's happening is that a lot of the kids, obviously, they want to turn pro. And I get it. But only 1% of the 1% make it. 
okay, which means the rest of them don't. And if you take $2,000 to play a tournament here, you can no longer go back to school and get a scholarship to play tennis to get education. So it was a little bit of a, a responsibility that was, that was kind of, you know, I, I guess for lack of a better term, thrust into it because a lot of the people ask me. And I have to be really honest with them. I've seen some kids who make the wrong decisions, and now all they're doing is being one of the pros at a local country club. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but if you had a, you know, wanted to do something bigger than that, even, you know, it was tough. And like I said, I don't, being a tour, touring pro at a facility is an unbelievable job, but you get a point where you don't have an education because you can't afford to pay for college, yet you can't play pros because you, you can't make do with not getting paid. And it's a tough position. And I think that in a lot of ways, that kind of like a sh- little bit of responsibility for me to talk, have a heart to heart talk with some kids and, and parents alike, because when I was had a conversation with my son, not that Andrew or Ryan could have made the pros, but once again, as a father, it is number one priority to make sure that the kids have a great education. Whether they play pro tennis or pro anything, that's one thing. But the fact that you need education to fall back on. And anytime you have a chance to do that, you know, you got to make sure and everybody looks at different, all sides of every situation. And sometimes my my answers weren't popular, but hey, listen, you know, I ended up with, you asked me the question and I answered it, especially some of these kids, 14, 15 year old, you know, they want to, they want to go to pro. Part of it is like, okay, are you aging up? I mean, are you number one in your, in your age group? If you're in college, are you top of, top of the top in college? If you're number 26 in college, I mean, you got, you got to be realistic about it. So anyway, so there's certain situations that come to mind when they ask you a big question that's going to affect their life. And I have to be honest with them. You know, once again, you know, sometimes my honesty wasn't the most popular one, but I think in more ways than not, I think it helped that person to go get an education. Pro tennis will always be there. Was there a particular conversation early on you had with a junior tennis player to say, hey, go get your education or go pro that kind of shaped how you went about doing that going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, I mean, there's been tons of conversations because you got to once again realize that when you're out there scouting players that are 10 and you're scouting players that are 18 and you have to look at each one of them and say, is this kid going to be able to make a living out of this? And sometimes it's a hard no. It is, it's not, like I said, it's not an easy conversation to have because I think they expect me to say, yeah, go pro. And you know, the next question is, will you sign me? Well, the answer is no, you should not go pro. Then of course, the next question is, I'm not going to sign you because you need to go get an education. You know, I mean, a lot of times, for instance, Donald Young, you know, here's a player that was a number one player in the country under 18 when he was 15 years old. And I've been watching him since he was 12, 13, 14. And and the big question is, should he go pro? Well, if you're number one player under 18 as a 15-year-old, you have to. You have to. Now, has he, did he really pan out? No, not really. But if all things are lining up for that player, if you're number one player under 18 in the world 
as a 15 year old, you have got to test the market. Unfortunately, that is the decision that they've also made. And, and I agree with them, but unfortunately, he really never did pan out. But Nike has paid him handsomely. And if they did save up their money, they should be fine. So it's not like it was all lost. But like I said, those are some uh, one instance where I have to really look at each in every one of these situations as an exception and make sure, making sure that whatever, if they're going to listen to what I said, I want to be make sure to take my time on whether they should or they shouldn't. Tell me about it. Tell me a particular story about when you were, were beginning to travel around the world. You're beginning to look for players to sign. Obviously, later in your career, you were specifically working with Rafa and Serena. But I'd love to hear about a particular story in which you're starting to go out there early on in your Nike career and it's just a defining moment, something that shaped you. Let's see, we signed Marie Sharapova when she was 11. And the agent, who was the agent till the end, I'm just sitting there watching her play junior matches. But I wasn't even watching her until he gave me a packet of information about Maria Sharapova. And he says, she's my new player. I'd love for you to come watch. I said, all right. So we made time and they did a, a practice session for me at Boletaries. I flew down to Bradenton and watched her practice. She's this little itty tiny little thing. And she could not see, speak English. And she's hitting balls with another player that ended up being number one player in the world at some point. Her name is Yelena Yankovic. And I met her, and of course, you can't have a conversation, but she said she could say six words in English because we sent her a bunch of stuff beforehand for the practice. And she says, I don't like your socks. <laughs> and it's like, of all things to start saying, she doesn't like our socks. There was like five words right there out of the six. And, but she knew what she wanted right off the bat. But as soon as I hit, you saw her hit five, six balls, it's like she's going to be good. Not to mention she's got the, the, the package, right? The marketability, the attitude, go to get her in. No one hated to lose more than Maria did. It's like, wow. You know, and that's when I realized that, man, I need to be on top of that age group because we had Rafa when he was 12. You know, Roger was a little older. And, of course, Serena and Venus were a little bit different because they were kind of raised and trained differently with Richard. So it was a little bit different, but you know, some of those players, you know, you've got to go much, much younger. It's strange because when you go to these young 10, 11, 12 year old tournaments, you have no idea, you know, I mean, I remember going to Easter bowl and I got off the plane and you know, one of those buses that take you from the plane to the tarmac because the Palm Springs airport is so small. I'm in the bus with two other people, and that's Andy Roddick and his mom. And Andy was this little guy. He was 10 years old. And of all the seats in the, in the bus, she's, he's actually sitting on her lap. I mean, that's how little he was. And I, didn't, I knew of him. I've never seen him play. And he's one of those players that, you know, I remember standing there watching one time, and there's somebody tugs my shirt from behind, and I look back and look down and it's, and he says, Mr. Nakajima, I'm Andy Roddick. I go, hey, Andy, how are you? He goes, I want to be with Nike. He goes, all right. He goes, hey, let me watch you play. I'll be playing court seven, third match or something like that. So I said, all right. 
Andy, I'll come watch. And it's one of those courts where it's all the way down and you can't watch it from the end because of the windscreens. So I had literally have to watch seven courts down. I mean, shoot, I can't even see what's happening on the second court, let alone, but I can see that it, it, little Andy's playing. He was feisty, right? And he, I knew he was a little, little fiery. But that match, I knew that he wanted to throw his racket a couple times, but he saw me and he did not throw a racket. Afterwards, he comes all the way over there and thanks me for coming to watch his match. From that age, which is, I think, 11 or 12, until 18 years old when he became the number one junior in the world, no matter what tournament it was, I go over there and take a peek at Andy, and Andy would find me soon after the match. It was Mr. Nakajima, I want to thank you for coming to watch my match. For years, and unfortunately, we never got to sign him because I wanted to sign him because I, I, my guess was that he was going to win Wimbledon. With that serve, he wasn't going to win Wimbledon, okay? He didn't. He won U.S. Open, but he did not win Wimbledon. And I remember my boss and I did not agree. Then I've got Andre Agassi vouching for me, Brad Gilbert vouching for me, so many people saying that this kid's going to be the number one player in the world. And I wanted to sign. My boss and I didn't agree. So I went over his head and went to my vice president and said, we got to sign this kid. He's the next great American player. And he basically looked at me and says, are you guys all as a group in cahoots? I go, no, I'm not. You know, my boss does not want to sign him. That was the end of the conversation. So we didn't sign him at the beginning. Okay. And then he signs with Reebok. And then before you know it, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk and somebody comes into the office and sits in my guest chair behind me. I'm not even, because my guest chair is behind me, right? So I'm typing away and look over, it's Phil Knight. And Phil just sitting there and I didn't even know. And of course I turn around and goes, oh, hey, how are you? He goes, good. He goes, how come we didn't send the, sign the kid with a big serve? And so he, he knew that we passed on him. The good thing is that when I'm really, really sure about something, I have to document it, especially if I did not get my way just to cover my base. And I had everything documented that, you know, I talked to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and I got denied. And it was one, one of those things where it kind of whenever, you know, good or bad, you just got to make sure to cover your tracks. And that was one of those, you know, he was not happy that we didn't sign him. And who knows? Nike's not better or worse with or without Andy Roddick. But, you know, when we were told in 1994 to sign the number one American player, well, the number one American player also happens to be a number one player in the world. And we went out and signed Pete Sampras. So Andy was, hey, we're an American company. You know, we wanted to sign the number one American at the time. It was Andy Roddick. And I ended up selling for a fraction of the price and ended up signing Marty Fish, who was the number two American player at the time. And I had to settle with it. But... Tell you what, I mean, even when Andy signed with Lacoste, I was out there at the end, you know, trying to like, get the tin cup out there, trying to get him enough money to sign him, and we weren't able to do it. So you learn. You live and learn. can't have everything. But, you know, when we put our heads together, I thought that at Nike we can sign just about anybody. It seems like, based on everything you've said, that timing is really important, whether it's getting to these players when they're younger, before these other brands, whether it's talking to individuals at the very right moment. Tell me a little bit about that 
process, especially in, in regards to this story with Andy and maybe signing Maria or Rafa, how timing is, is important? Oh, timing is everything, right? Because back in the day, when we signed Andre Agassi in 1985, he wore the product well and all that stuff. So Nike was by far the hands-on best product out there at the time. Many years later, I had a chance to talk to Andre and I asked him why you went with us. Because everybody wanted him. Adidas wanted him, Reebok wanted him, and Nike wanted him. And I said, why'd you go with us? I'd like to think that we had the greatest product in the world, but I just want to hear from you for reals. And he says, do you want to know the true story or what I tell people? And I said, okay, well, what do you tell people? He goes, well, of course, Nike's the best. Okay, that's not what you're telling. You know, it's not the truth. But, well, it is, except I went with Nike because you guys gave me a ton of stuff. And when I wanted to sell that stuff to all my friends, I got the most money out of selling Nike stuff than I did with Reebok or Adidas stuff. No. And he says, I made a lot of money that way. So now, so going back to that, I mean, I think the Nike makes great product, but it became the fact that at the end of the day, it's the money, right? It's the money. If, you know, our, our money is just as green as Adidas and Reeboks. Okay, so then what's the difference? Okay, I like to sit here and say Nike makes the greatest product. And I think I still believe that, but I think Adidas believes that they make the greatest product and so does Reebok. It's the relationship. It's the relationship you have with your athletes that's gonna go a long ways. So the sports marketing team that we put together was there for a long time and we built that relationship. Every other department at Nike that works with tennis, two, three years, then they're gone get somebody else in here. Sports marketing was a staple. The athletes knew who we were. That's the way it was. So when I went to junior tournament, I was a Nike guy. And I found out later that everybody knew that I was a Nike guy because I've been there a long time. That's the only thing, you know, people talk, oh, that, guy, that guy is Nike. He's signing players. So later on, and I found out from so many athletes, one guy, he actually works at sports marketing and Cameron. You know, he told me that it's like whenever I, you know, I show up, he gets nervous because you should be focusing on your mat. But at that level, you're looking at who's watching you. And that's super important to them because if it makes a difference on your sponsorships, you know, you want to play well. But a lot of times it makes, you know, has a reverse effect. But like I said, relationship that you have with athletes, you have with parents with influencers and with coaches and with agents is super important because if you are, if you do, you know, something that is wrong, shouldn't be illegal, whatever, tell you what, it's a small market. So it's a small industry. So it gets around. People know that, Hey, there are a lot of agents out there and they're still out there that I will never deal, do deals with again, because that's just the way it is. You seen uh, Jerry Maguire. Right? Love that movie. And you know, your, your handshake is good as oak. Well, that's what we went off of a lot of times. But I've been reneged on contracts when we shake hands. And back in Nike, they're printing up the legal documents. By the time I get back, well, they got a better offer. And therefore, you lose. So it's a relationship is so that even they off offer you better money, you think that these guys are going to stick around because I love the guy I work with. You know, he's a stand-up guy, and I wanted to be that guy. And I wanted to work with athletes that are going to be that, not somebody who's going to take the bigger deal after we make the deal. 
and word gets around in the industry, you know, and so we have to be very, very honest with what we do. It may not be the most popular thing to do, but it's, we have to be honest because once again, it gets out there in the industry. And that was super important to be honest. And, you know, you, we want to be make sure we're upfront about everything that we clear and concise with the conversations. And we'll make sure that we're honest at the end of the day. And that honesty and that integrity, I think you can attest to, it goes a long way. We mm -hmm. all, each of us only have one name. We only have one brand. That's us. That's how we act, what we say, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Talk more about some of those relationships you were able to form on the basis of that integrity and honesty. Well, I mean, once again, you know, you, when you have great relationships, you take that off the court, meaning go have dinners with them. You go do stuff with them outside that a good one. that I think you may know this story is I had a really great relationship and I still do with a guy named James Blake. He got to number four in the, in the world, got quarterfinals of the U S open and he had some epic matches and so forth. And at one time we were in Australia and we're having dinner. And he says, what would you give me if I win another tournament? And it was like a blanket statement, right? It's like, what do you mean? I pay you a lot of money to win tournaments. He goes, no, 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 no. I need a bigger incentive. We go, what do you want? What, what, what's going to help you? Because I want to help you, okay? And he was slumping a little bit. And he says, all right, I want you to go skydiving with me. And I looked at him and was like, skydiving? You know I've got kids, right? And it's like, I tell you what, if my wife says, okay, I'll do it. So I call my, my wife up. She says, absolutely not. Not going to happen. I said, I said, JB, not going to happen. All right. He says, obviously he was thinking it. He says, okay, I tell you what, if I win another tournament between now and the U S open, you dye your hair blonde. And I said, dye my hair blonde. Okay. What if you don't win? He goes, then I'll, you know what, whatever I get at the U S open, the portion of it, you know, I'll donate to charity. I go, all right, done. So we shook hands on it. I didn't think twice about it, right? So you got to, you know, February, March, April, nothing goes by. He does okay. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And then we're in the Cincinnati, which is Western and Southern Open now. He gets to semifinals or something like that. I go, hey, good effort. You know, I thought it was really good effort. And then he goes to Pilot Pen, which is in, you know, in his backyard. Then I realized that he has a chance to do really, really well there. Because at the time, Roddick was top, top of the world and Hewitt was playing well. And, you know, so we figured, okay, but whatever. So he starts to win and win and win. And he gets to semifinals and wins the semifinals match. So all of a sudden, he texts me, says, one more match to go. And that's when I realized that, because I wasn't really keeping track. I mean, because I got other things to worry about. And that's when I realized that, oh, yeah, I've got a bet going on. And he plays Feliciano Lopez from Spain in the finals. By then, by the time the finals rolls around, I'm already in New York doing work and at the courts. And then I stop by the referee's office and then look at the, the, uh, the, the TV up above, and it's the finals. So then finals is being played. Lopez wins the first set. All right? So I'm going – Great. It's the first time I'm not cheering for my, my friend here. And then this hurricane or some rainstorm comes rolling in. There's a rainstorm that is, kind of washes out for a couple hours. So I leave. I come back and they start to play again. 
all of a sudden, James wins the second set. Okay, now I'm like, what? And guess what Lopez does? He tanks the third set. So now I am so deeply entrenched in my, my, my seat because I'm so devastated. The tournament director from US Open comes out of his office and he goes, Nock, what the hell's wrong with you? I go, you have no idea. And then I told him the story. They all start laughing at the same time. So James wins. He hugs his mom and he cuts the commercial break. And no second, like 10 seconds later, I get a text. And he says, you're going to look great as a blonde is the text I got. I mean, it had even, I mean, it was like 10 seconds after. And I go, oh my gosh, that must have been an incentive for him to do well. So he comes to US Open, I'm working, and I'm in the suite of our US Open, and lo and behold, who comes in? It's him. And then he comes right up to me and lifts my hat up, and he says, okay, well, apparently one of us have not kept up our, our end of the bargain. I go, no, 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 I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. Okay, so finally I asked one of my colleagues, listen, can you just take me somewhere to get a consultation to get my hair blonde? Because when your mom goes to get her haircut, chances are she has to wait months, right? It's not somewhere like you and I go get at the barbers. You know, you can get in in 10 minutes. We're in, we're out. Right? It's not quite that way. So I figured if I can't get in, then it's not my fault. I tried. So before that, I called the lady who cuts my hair. She knows me very well. And I said, hey, listen, I lost my, my bet. I, I lost the bet. Can you tell me what would happen if I dyed my hair blonde? And she says, don't. I go, I understand that. But I have to. I lost the bet. And she says, whatever it is, do not use yellow or orange dye. And she says, well, why is that? Because your hair will literally melt off your head. I said, okay, it's good to know. So then we go to Fifth Avenue at this posh because I wasn't going to the, any, you know, side street one. Of course. So there's a, a security guard in the front and he says, can I help you? I, and my friend says, yeah, we're here for consultation. And the guy says, you know, you have to have months appointment ahead. And I'm going, I know, but I just need to hear it in person. So he says, whatever. He lets us through and it's like a factory up there. I mean, you talking, there must've been a hundred chairs up there and probably 99.9% .9 women. So the lady comes out, her name is Olivia, this Chinese woman, and she says, what well, can I help you? And she says, we need a consultation about dying hair blonde. And he, she starts talking to her, and my friend looks at me, goes, not for me, it's for him, and looks at me. And she looks at me like, you want to dye your hair blonde? I said, my friend said, yeah, he lost the bet. He goes, really? He goes, you know, we need, you know, you can't just get in here. I go, I understand that. All I need you to do is, and I grab the piece of paper and says, can you just let me write it down? that he tried to get his hair dyed, but could not get in and sign. That's all I need. That's my out. She says, can you wait five minutes? And I said, sure. She goes in the back, comes back, and she goes, I'll take you in right now. And I, my jaw just dropped. I thought I was going to die. No pun intended. <laughs> so I, you know, so she puts me in a chair, and I don't know if you know the process, but he puts foil in your hair, and it starts brushing it, you know, with dye. And these two ladies on both sides of me is asking me why I'm doing this. And she, they're like nonstop asking me questions. So I asked Olivia, Olivia, can, is there like a private room I can go? And she says, yeah, no problem. So she puts me in this private room. Okay. Literally, it's a small office. And she says, Madonna gets her hair colored in this room. 
then I look at her as like, I'm sorry, Olivia, how much does it cost? And she says, $275, $275. I said, okay, well, it's bet to bet. So I'm getting it done. And all of a sudden I get a phone call. Sure enough, it's James. I said, uh, hello. He goes, what are you doing? I said, what do you think I'm doing? You must be in the cafeteria again. Ha ha ha. He goes, no, guess again. And all of a sudden silence on the other end. And he, sure enough, he goes, tell her to stop. I go, no, I'm going to go through it. He goes, I want you to stop. He goes, you're going to look terrible as a blonde and I don't want to see you like this. Tell her to stop. I said, no, I'm going to go for it. He goes, please tell her to stop. And I said, Olivia, can we stop? And she says, you want me to stop right now? She goes, yes. So we stopped, but my half my hair is blonde. Now I look actually even more bad. It's like I work worse. I didn't want to pay the extra 275 to dye it black again, because you do the math. That's $550 on my hair. That's not worth $10. So sure enough, I waited until it completely grew up. So that year, my Christmas card, it was like I had completely premature gray. So again, my point is relationship with athletes, when you can do stuff, you know what? He was never going to leave Nike because of the relationship that we have because we're friends and yeah, we're colleagues, business colleagues. Forget the fact that Nike was paying him a lot of money, but I think, hey, I think it was win-win. He got, a, he got a, a, a tournament win under his belt. And I think in, in a way, I don't think anybody expected him to be top five player in the world. And I, I like to think that Nike had a little, little something to do with that. You know, he's a big New York Mets fan. And also the fact that Shea Stadium is right there. So we dressed him up and you know, New York Mets uniform with his name on it, the crowd goes crazy and he fed off of that, right? So the relationship, no one else, you know, the fact that I'm a Mets fan, it was easy for me to, you know, execute that. But once again, if you get to know your athlete really well, you have a chance to sign that athlete better because everything else is the same. The money's the same. And, you know, so that's an example of having a really good relationship with an athlete that allows you to keep that athlete and you know what? He was a huge ambassador for the, uh, the company and the sport. Was that the craziest thing you've ever done? That's, with half blonde hair, that's crazy. I mean, there, there's some, Patrick, there's some crazy stories. <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have to dive into that another time. Mike, so as you're able to cultivate these relationships with James, with Roger, with Rafa, Take me into some of those moments, some of those stories that are behind the scenes that the public doesn't always get to see of these athletes, these human beings, just being incredibly generous and authentic. I know there's there's some great stories about Roger coming out to to campus and putting on fitness classes and, and just serving you guys food. But please dive into a couple of those. I think those are some of the gems that not everyone yeah. gets to hear about. Here's another story, Andre Agassi, okay? One of the all-time greatest. The most, one of those most generous people I've ever met. One year, I drove over to the local Fred Myers and I saw Dennis Brown, who you know was a, at the time was the general manager of the West Hills Racket and Fitness Club. I haven't seen her in a long time. She's a general manager of the club that you and I belong to. And I asked her how she was doing and she said, not very good. I go, what's the matter? He goes, well, my husband's got cancer. And I go, oh, no. She says, how bad is it? It's 
it's terminal, stage four. And I said, oh my gosh, you know. And since then, he plays tennis and, and uh, he loves following the circuit. And a few months later, I get an invitation in the mail for Bob's birthday. It was, they were gonna have a party at their house. And it was kind of strange because I didn't think I knew her well enough to get such an invitation. It was a small invitation, 30 people or whatever at their house. And most likely one of Bobby's last. So I wanted to do something. What I did was I called Andre Agassi up and I knew that Andre was his favorite athlete. And I had given him a racket signed by Andre before. And it was, it says to Bobby, hang in there, Andre, on the racket grip. And Dennis at her house on the way up and down on the stairs, there are these words, hope, H-O-P-E. And he put the racket above the word hope. And every time he'd go up or down, he would rub, touch the racket. That's his become his routine, you know, because he loved Andre so much. And I knew that. Dennis told me that that was such a cherished present from Andre and all that. So I called up Andre, knowing that his sister and his mother both went through cancer. And I said, Andre, I need a favor because I'm invited to a friend of mine's birthday. He's got cancer. Will you give him a call and wish him a happy birthday? And he says, tell me when. So I give him the exact date and the time. Party started about four. I said, how about five o'clock? You go, done. So we go to Dennis's house and place is packed. It's not a big place, so 30 people is a lot of people. And I kind of forgot a little bit about it, you know, because you're meeting with different people and most people I don't even know. And it was fun, it's nice, it was super nice, but it was very low key. So all of a sudden, five o'clock on the nose, the phone rings. So Dennis takes the phone outside because there's you know, a lot of noise inside the house. And three minutes later, she comes back and she says, Everyone, I need you to take a seat. I have a phone call from my husband, from Andre Agassi. And you can hear the pin drop, right? All of a sudden, everybody stopped and everybody sat down in their seat. It was a long table. We all sat there and Bobby sits down and you should have seen his face. He thought originally maybe it was a hoax of some sort, sort, right? I think they both looked at me and I said, take the call. So... He takes the call and he sits down. And I think the conversation was probably 10 minutes. But 10 minutes at that point for all of us felt like an eternity. And Andre did most of the talking. I remember Bobby saying, I watched you at Indian Wells. I went there. I watched you at the US Open. I watched you play. I've been a huge, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so you know, inspired by you. And, but that's about all he said. Andre did most of the talking. And after he hang up the phone, he just said these words. He says, I just had a phone call from Andre Agassi, like that. And everybody was happy, Everybody, but everybody had tears in their eyes because Bobby was happy. And that's what it was all about. And for me, I owe Andre so much for that because talking to somebody you don't know and talk through what they're going through and give them the inspiration to, to tell him to hang in there and, and thinking about you and everything that you 
wish everybody can say to you, which they did, but to hear from your, your idol, for him, it was unbelievably generous for him to do that. And Dennis told me that since that day on, he never wore that smile off his face. And that's something that I'll remember for the rest of my life because I know how generous those things can be. And I owe a lot to Andre for doing that. It's easy to write a check, give a free racket and all that. But it's also it's something else where you actually encourage somebody on a phone and talk. It's not easy, but that's the kind of person he is. And that's the kind of person he's been for as long as I remember, because we lost Andre for a few years. And I remember I was down in uh, Palo Alto, and I had a conversation with Dick Gould, right, the coach at Stanford. And I was, the day we lost Andre, it was not a, a fun day for me or anybody else, for that matter. But the exact day that we lost Andre was a day that I was down in Palo Alto and he called, but it says blocked number. So I didn't pick it up. And he left a message saying, knock, this is Andre. And you know what, I'm sure you guys, you know what happened, but Hey, you're always part of family. If you ever need anything, don't hesitate to give me a call and left me that message. You know, as soon as Dick left, I heard that message and Dick came back. And three minutes later, I get another call. It was a block call again. I go, Oh my gosh, that can't be him. So I picked it up and sure enough, he says, I didn't want to leave a message. I want to talk to you in person. And you don't want to think he didn't have to do that. It's, I think it shows that, you know, when you're, your upbringing is such that you're doing the right things. I mean, there are a lot of things he then done right there that I don't know if I'm able to do that. I don't know if I have it in me to do that, but he does. And he's an amazing human being. And that's just one example of the events that touched my life because they're not just athletes, they're great human beings, you know, and those are some of the things that, like you said, that people don't see. And I'm not sure if I ever told this story to many people, but it's something that I'll be forever grateful for. That generosity, I think, speaks volume, especially when it comes from someone who has achieved what society would say is successful. I firmly believe that each of us writes our own definition of what it means to be successful, happy, fulfilled in this world. I think a lot of people buy into what society is saying, money, fame, you're a pro athlete, you have influence in that way. I personally have a different definition. To me, when I see someone in the face of that temptation where they've achieved quote all this societal success and they can let it go to their head act in a way like Andre right there I think that just makes me love Andre and, and those athletes is so much more how often did you witness that sort of generosity I think when you're in sports marketing there's a myth the myth is that everybody thinks that's all we do is just hang out with those athletes and it's not maybe less than 10% of our time. But you do see enough when certain people are brought up in a way. Take Jonathan Stark for an example. I think we talked about that earlier. Such class, such class. James Blake, I put him right up there. I've seen him lose to some of the toughest matches in the biggest venues. And he stays and signs every autograph. 
every autograph. We're not talking 10. We're talking 20, 30, 40 autographs after a loss. You watch any of the professional tennis matches now, and guys who lose, they pick up their stuff, and they're gone in 10 seconds. Right? Granted, there are no fans to sign autographs for, but when they were, I mean, some people are not that way. Others, because they know, they get it. They're the one it's the reason why they're there. It's the fans. Certainly there are fans and there are athletes that are not perfect. None of us are perfect. But when they do something right or when they do something wrong, it's magnified just because of the platform that they are in and because of the fact that they're high profile. And it gets to be on the news if they do something wrong or if they do something right. And when you and I do something wrong or right, hey, our parents slap our hands or whatever, but hopefully that's it, right? In those guys' case, it's a little different. But so you do see it a lot more just because you're seeing them when the cameras aren't. And you get to see everyone's true colors because everybody turns it on when the camera's on. They don't want to look bad in front of everybody. It's what they act behind the scenes when the cameras are not rolling. I think it shows who they really are. And how, how can each of us pro athletes, consultants, students, researchers, turn that generosity on even when the cameras are off? Well, well first of all, let's, let's talk about the world we live in right now. And unfortunately, there's a lot of hate. So when something does something great, it makes the news. It wasn't that long ago when everything seems to be better and when something bad happens, it's on the news. Now something good happens, it's on the news. And not that I like the other way better because there's a lot of bad things that happen no matter where you go. I think it's important for us to really, really think about where we are right now in this world and really focus on respecting others, really focus on doing the right thing and certainly not do, you know, if you don't want something done to you, don't do it to others. We just need to be a lot more cognizant of the fact that all this vitriol and hate has to go away. It has to go away and come back with compassion. And it has to, you know, and certainly, like I said, the social injustice, the racial injustice and the equality. I mean, it's all that it needs to be. We need to be better. We all need to be better. Your parents have taught you an amazing, you know, way to do, be compassionate. Every single one of your families compassionate. We all need to be, use that as a, as, a, as a blueprint to make sure that we're all doing, you know, the right things and we're all being, I mean, nice to each other. It's not very hard to say thank you. It doesn't cost us a dime to do nice things. Random act of kindness. We need to do more of that. And hopefully we will change that too soon. Was there someone that embodied random acts of kindness or small actions of kindness better than most that you worked with? Okay, here's a little small story, right? French Open, I'm standing in, in the tr- transportation line. I'm like 10th person. The cars come, the players, agents, manufacturer, all stand in line for next car to come take us back to our hotel. So you've heard of an athlete by the name of Patrick Rafter, one of the nicest guys on tour. Here's somebody who always seems to do no wrong. Nicest guy, does the right things, nice to everybody, very respectful. So he is 
probably two people in front of me waiting for the car. Okay. So the next car rolls around and door opens out of nowhere. This woman by the name of Anna Kornikova comes in, gets in the car. She wasn't even, she wasn't even in the line. She gets into the car, closes the door and tries, tells the driver to go. So of course, if it was me or anybody else would have done that, she would have given us the bird. Pat Rafter gets in the front of the line, opens the door, takes Anna's hand out and escorts her out to the car and says, the line is back there. And then next person, he escorted the next person into the car, closed the door. And there must've been 30 people there all like, you know, clapped for his random act of kindness, which I thought it was great. Now, did he have to do that? Well, he was in line, but the fact of the matter is that out of everybody that's in the line, he was probably the only one that would could do what he did because he had the platform. He was one of those guys that could leverage who he was and Anna was not going to say no to him. The guy is a grand slam champion, the nicest guy in the world. I think little things that you see that players, for the most part, are really good people. They're a little bit naive in the sense that they never really grew up like we did. They grew up as tennis players. Little things that I got to do with my friends in my teenage years, maybe they didn't have that because they're already at such a high level and they didn't get a chance to, to do a lot of the common sense stuff that we may know how to do because they're traveling around the world being tennis players, acknowledging fans and, you know, waving at some of those people. That's their world. And they, they all need to, to know that what they say and, and what they do is magnified quite a bit. So especially when they do something really nice, they should get the accolades for it because if it reverberates across the industry, it'll be good for everybody. I want to I end our conversation today with a little rapid fire called Name That Player. I'm gonna shoot off 12 quick questions and I just want you to name the first player that you've worked with, talked to, interacted with in the last 30 years come to mind. Sound good? Okay. Goofiest player you've worked with? Goofiest player? Man, that's a good question. Guy named Marcelo Rios. Player that was most interested in doing things other than actually playing tennis. Nick Kyrgios. Best ping pong player. Mark Knowles. Most satisfied with the Nike products you provided. <laughs> well, I think Andre Agassi. <laughs> He's had it longer than anybody. <laughs> Calmest under stress. Roger Federer. Even though he tells us that it's not always the case, but he shows it on the outside. Player that gave you a piece of advice that you still think about today? John McEnroe. Family first. Love that. You know. Most likely to thank everyone in the room he's in. Roughing it up. Player that had the most unique hobby. Most unique hobby. Oh my goodness. Roughing it all again. Deep sea fishing. Most competitive off the tennis court. Oh, man. Mark Philippousis. Least preferred the spotlight. Least preferred the spotlight. Mary Jo Fernandez. Two more. We're almost there. Most likely to bring their kids to a practice or a match. 
shoot, you got to realize that Roger Federer now, but used to be King Kleisters. <laughs> and last one, spent the greatest time with their fans. That's a good question. Oh, wow. A Roger Federer. You can talk to little kids or adults and everybody can relate, speak six different languages. When you ask him to do an hour appearance, he'll stay for four hours. And you don't hear about stuff like that. Mike, leave us with one thing. If you were to tell any listener or anyone during this time, based on kind of all we talked about today, generosity behind the camera, what would you leave anyone with? Generosity behind the camera? Well, first of all, you don't know who's watching you. The athletes are so used to people watching you perform. But knowing, especially those guys, people are always watching. These days with social media, with video cameras and stuff like that, everybody's watching you. And I think it's important to realize that the front of the camera or behind the scenes person needs to be the same. And I think it's starting to, to become that because some of those guys don't get any privacy, period. Especially at that, at that level. So if you're a nice person to begin with, there's nothing to worry about. And a lot of the guys that I work with are just that. Great guys on and off the court. But I think it's important to make sure that we all realize that, hey, just because the camera's not on you doesn't mean you'd be a different person than you would normally be. And I think it's important that uh, we all figure that and uh, be genuine. Great. Genuineness, authenticity, 24-7. Just right like on. Like Mike Nakajima, you are the standard, my friend. Oh, no, no. Patrick, great talking to you. Thanks for having me. That was super kind of you to have me, and I, I enjoy the conversation. 